we now have come to a time of Bible reading. Uh, our passage for today is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Be kind. That's the simple message Ellen DeGeneres used to be famous for and is now infamous for. Be kind, the tagline with which she'd end each show. The definition of her own personal brand and the slogan on a whole range of merch. Be kind. Except it turns out that it was a hollow sentiment for those who actually worked on her show, those who were close enough to see beyond the brand and instead experience the reality. And as the world is wont to do, we gleefully piled on, shouting hypocrite as we watched the spectacle of yet another celebrity fall from grace. Turns out it's easier to become globally famous for saying, be kind, than it is to, well, be kind. Be united. That's the simple message of our passage today from Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, it's the central purpose of at least three New Testament epistles, arguably more. And it's the simple message that Jesus wanted his church to be globally famous for. If you recall his prayer in John chapter 17, that we may be one just as Jesus and his Father are one. Unity was to be our brand. We are all one in Christ Jesus should be emblazoned on all of our merch. It's a simple message. But just like Ellen, we've become globally famous for doing the opposite of what we preach. Because being united... It's not easy, is it? Now, I know the outside world will probably focus on how many denominations we have, or the wars that have been fought between, say, Catholics and Protestants, or the way we attack each other in public on social media while the world watches on. But to me, the more insidious form is what goes on within the local church, a small community which believes the same articulation of the gospel, people who know one another personally, who see each other week after week, pray together, break bread together, uh, in normal times sing together in praise of the same God, yet still somehow manage to act in ways that cause hurt, to welcome some and exclude others, to hold grudges, to put others down in order to build themselves up, to perpetuate the divisions that exist in the world here in the one place on earth they should not exist. Be united. Might be simple to say, but it's not easy to do. And if we are to do it, we're going to need more than glib slogans and overpriced t-shirts. More than just a weekly pep talk that tells us once more to be united before leaving us to continue in our old patterns, just like we've always done. And to be honest, the guts of Paul's instruction does sound like a pep talk. Uh, most of it wouldn't be out of place as the sign-off by a daytime talk show host. You know, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Is that all Paul's got? A slightly sappy reminder to be kind, 
to try that little bit harder to be united? Except that's not how our passage starts. And how it starts is crucial. How it starts is what sets Christians apart from everyone else who'd like to make the world a nicer place. How it starts is, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And he goes on with that call to unity. But there's an important word in that first sentence that's easy to gloss over. The word, therefore. Therefore, it means that Paul's exhortation to unity should be seen in light of what's come before. The fact that he himself is a prisoner of the Lord, which he talked about at the start of chapter 3. But not only that, all of what he said in the letter up to this point, all of that is what makes his call to unity both possible and indeed necessary. So let's have a bit of a recap of the story so far in Ephesians. Uh, Because Ephesians is, is a eulogy. You know, the kind of speech that you give at a funeral, uh, it's a eulogy for God. Now, the astute among you will have immediately spotted a small problem with that. Um, God isn't dead, right? But that's a hashtag 21st century problem, as back in the first century, you could give a eulogy for someone who was still alive. Uh, Not as a way of giving them a hint or anything, you know, hurry up and... No, in the first century, a eulogy was simply a speech in praise of someone in praise of someone who was praiseworthy. And the aim of such a eulogy was, obviously, to praise the subject of the eulogy. But it also had a secondary function. Now, one time my wife Sam and I were at a funeral and we heard a particularly glowing eulogy, painting a portrait of a wonderful God-honouring person. And Sam turned to me and said, Wow, it, it makes you wish you were like them, doesn't it? To which I said, What, dead? Uh, Now, apparently that wasn't the right response and could form part of the reason I'm a lecturer now rather than a pastor. But Sam has a point, doesn't she? That if you hear a great eulogy or just a really nice speech at a birthday or a wedding, uh, even if you read a great biography or see a movie that's a true story about someone particularly inspiring, when we hear stories that eulogize someone, they often make us want to emulate them in some way. And that's what eulogies were supposed to do back in Paul's day. So as we read this eulogy called Ephesians, let's keep this in mind. How does it inspire us to praise God? And how does it inspire us to emulate him, to be like him? Paul starts off in verse 3 of chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I need to stop there and point out something about the word Christ. Uh, Because these days, in many people's minds, it pretty much functions as Jesus' surname, doesn't it? This is Jesus Christ, son of Joseph and Mary Christ from down the road in Nazareth, Galilee. Uh, But our word Christ comes from the Greek word for anointed one. And the Hebrew word for that, the Old Testament word for that, is Messiah. You know, the promised king from the line of David in whom all of God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled. That Messiah. So as I read bits of Ephesians to you today, I'm going to replace the word Christ with the word Messiah. And I'm going to do that to remind us of how Jewish all of this is. Because Paul is a Jew, and he's writing to Ephesian followers of this Messiah, most of whom are not Jewish. And that forms a very important part of the background. And so where was I? Uh, Verse 3. What are we to praise God for? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the Messiah. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, so far, Paul's praising God for blessing his chosen people, Israel, for choosing for himself a people even before he made the world. But why did he choose them? Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Messiah. In the ancient world, the firstborn son was the father's authorised representative, the one who could conduct business on the father's behalf. And so as God's special people, Israel was supposed to act as God's representative to a rebellious world, to bear his image to all of creation, just as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. But throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel most of the time fail to live up to their calling, just like Adam and Eve failed. It's like we all have. And yet now, praise God, because he sent his Messiah to do what his people were unable to do. Praise God, because by Jesus' sacrifice, as their perfect representative, he's paid the penalty for their failure. Verse 7, in Messiah, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Which means that once more, God's people can bear his image. They can exist once more to the praise of his glory. And this was God's plan all along. His plan to restore not just humanity, but all of his broken creation. A plan once hidden, but now revealed. Verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in the Messiah to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. To bring unity, here's that word, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under the Messiah. You starting to get where this is headed? Well, good, because there's a whole lot more. Paul says in verse 11, In Messiah we were also chosen in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in the Messiah, that is the first Jewish believers, that we might be for the praise of his glory. But then he says this, and listen closely because this is where Israel's story becomes our story. Verse 13, And you also, and he's speaking to non-Jews in Ephesus, You also were included in Messiah when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's us. We get to be in Messiah too. We get to be God's possession, as Paul says in the next verse. We get to exist to the praise of his glory. And Paul then goes on to pray for these newly incorporated believers in Ephesus. And by extension, he goes on to pray for us. He prays that we might understand the enormity of what's happened that we might grasp the power of his resurrection, the defeat that our Messiah has inflicted on sin and death. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised the Messiah from the dead. Now, as part of God's people, we have both the responsibility and the power to live for his glory, to bear his image in a rebellious world. And just in case you'd missed the enormity of what's happened, all of chapter 2 is dedicated to a before and after picture of what it means for us. Because beforehand, what's our status? Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What's more, that put us outside God's people. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that at that time you were separate from the Messiah, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. We were left out, excluded, rejected. Until, verse 13, but now, in Messiah Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. We were once excluded, now we are included. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, that's Jews and non-Jews, he's made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's the Old Testament law and all of its requirements. Because his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. It means that there's one people of God, not two, And you and I, we belong in it. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I mean, we're family. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Messiah Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I mean, praise God, right? Paul's about to. At the start of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, I." he's about to pray. But he gets sidetracked. Sort of. Because he describes himself in this way. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Messiah Jesus, for the sake of of you Gentiles. And so before he prays, he goes on to explain why it is he's in prison. It's because he's answered God's call to bring this message about Messiah Jesus. This message about God's people now being for both Jews and Gentiles. The mystery now revealed that through the gospel, the Gentiles, us, We are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Messiah Jesus. And Paul then finally gets to his prayer. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He's not just the God of the Jews. He's not just the God of white people. He's not just the God of the middle class. He's the God of every people group in creation. They belong to him. They share his name. They bear his image. And this message is for all of them. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Is that idea of unity again to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of the Messiah, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Praise God, right? That's how Paul finishes. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Messiah Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's at that point that Paul says at the start of chapter 4, our passage today, he says, I urge you, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So what does it mean to live a life worthy of our calling? by now I think it should be obvious, right? I mean, the therefore gives it away. 
What is it that this eulogy consistently praises God for? What is it about God that this eulogy wants us to emulate? It's the fact that in Messiah, he is at work bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth. That in Messiah, he has made one humanity out of the two. That in Messiah, he's brought down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and non-Jews, between people of different race, different gender, different socioeconomic background, different political affiliation. That in Messiah, he's made those who are once excluded from his people and without hope, he's made them to be fellow citizens and members of his household. That in Messiah, he's enabled people from every family in heaven and on earth to share in the promises given to his people and fulfilled in that same Messiah. Something, by the way, Paul is so passionate about, he was prepared to go to prison to tell you all about it. He prays that our minds might be enlightened so we can fully appreciate the enormity of it all. So if you belong to this one people, this new humanity, Paul says, live like it. How? Chapter 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. That's why. It's who we are. By the power of the resurrected Messiah and by the spirit of that same Messiah living in us, that is what we were predestined to be. This isn't a glib plea to be kind at the close of a TV show. Uh, this call to unity is the climax of divine history. It's the logical outworking of the resurrection and a call to a different way of life at the start of a brand new creation, empowered by nothing less than the Spirit of God. So what might it look like here in our church some 2,000 years later? How do we live out unity, not just in slogans and in lofty ideals, but in the everyday interactions of a Messiah-following community? Well, I've got three suggestions. Some of them you might not like, but that's okay. It's the beauty of now being a guest speaker. I get to leave Ange to deal with the fallout when he gets back from holidays. Uh, but the first one lays the groundwork for the other two, and it's this. Leave your political tribe. Don't just leave it to join another one. I mean, just leave. Because I don't have to tell you how politically tribal our world's become. Amplified by social media, hiding behind the relative anonymity of our smartphones, we dehumanise the other tribe. We demonise anyone in it while blindly supporting everyone from our own, no matter what. A black and white world where we are always right and they are always wrong. And a lot of the time we've brought that into the church. We've grafted our version of the gospel onto one or other of the political tribes and then uncritically aligned ourselves, and by implication the gospel, with its people and its policies. But there's no place for that in Messiah. To paraphrase Paul from Galatians 3, for us there should be neither right nor left, conservative nor progressive, Republican nor Democrat, for we are all of the one civic body in Messiah Jesus. And more than that, when you think about it, the message of Jesus' kingdom is both conservative and progressive while being truly neither. It's conservative in that it seeks to conserve that in human society, which is in line with God's plan for humanity as his image bearers. 
but it refuses to conserve oppressive, abusive, and self-serving sources of power. And it's progressive in that it seeks to progress the values of the kingdom, which are all about freedom from oppression, the valuing of all people and all people groups, and meeting the needs of the marginalized and the disadvantaged. But it doesn't confuse progress with a humanist, secularist agenda that sees God and his lack of tolerance for sinful behavior as being part of the problem. Yet the kingdom also operates outside the power structures of our world. It doesn't try to legislate its agenda. Rather, it seeks to embody its attractive difference in the individual and the collective lives of its members. Leave your political tribe. And by that, I don't mean disengage with politics. I don't mean stop weighing up the various party platforms and voting for the one that you think best embodies the values of the kingdom. Uh, although, newsflash, none of them does entirely. And I don't even mean you should necessarily give up party membership or, or voting patterns. But what I mean is, hold that association loosely. Keep your allegiance to Jesus primary. And embrace those in the church who think differently. Embrace them as your brother and sister in the Messiah. Now, before we move on to the next suggestion, let me tell you which tribe I've left. I voted conservative all my life, probably will continue to do so, and I certainly haven't joined the other side. But I say this now so that those of you who might share my background will hear the two things I say next without dismissing me as a cultural Marxist or some kind of woke progressive. Uh, or as Tim Keller recently put it, talking about oppression, justice, etc. doesn't make one a Marxist, it makes one a student of the Bible. Because the next way in which we, as Jesus' church, can live a life worthy of our calling is this. Model unity between the genders. Our community should be a witness to the unity of men and women. And that's regardless of our theological viewpoint on gender roles. Whether we might consider ourselves complementarian or egalitarian, that is, whether or not we think Scripture allows women to lead or teach men, uh, whether we're wanting to recover biblical manhood and womanhood, or wanting to recover from biblical manhood and womanhood, put that debate aside for the moment. Regardless of all that, we should be a community that shows the world how men and women relate to one another in self-sacrificial love, right? Now, men, this should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that means not abusing women, not using our superior physical strength to control. It means not having to hashtag not all men every time, because we know it's not all men, but fact is it's some men, and the rest of us men need to do what we can to pull them into line. I mean, it's bad enough when abuse happens out there in the world, but it's a downright disgrace when it happens amongst God's people in light of what God has done for us. And the same goes for how we model unity among diverse ethnic backgrounds. In fact, this one's the most direct application of the passage, which is firstly about ethnic tribalism. Because uh, if God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, how dare we try to re-erect it? You can't say, hey, praise God that he's allowed me as an outsider to become a citizen of his people, to become a member of his household, and then not extend that to other outsiders. Now, this isn't having a go at racism in the church, because it just should be a given that we're not racist. I mean, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're still a racist, then I politely suggest that you go back where you came from, uh, which according to Paul back in chapter 2, is alienated from God and without hope in the world. Because God has made it very plain that in Messiah there is no place for ethnic tensions. But I'm calling us to go further than that. 
Because I think Ephesians gives us not so much a rebuke about being racist, so much as an invitation to be part of something better than the world around us. To create a community that models what it looks like when the dividing walls of hostility have been ripped down by the power of the resurrected Jesus. How can we best display to a world around us what racial harmony really looks like? Because biblical justice is not about how loudly you can get offended on someone else's behalf, or about calling out people's clueless infractions in the past, or policing our language to make sure it's fully up to date with what words are okay and what aren't. That's the world's legalism. No, it's about going out of our way to form friendships with people across all kinds of dividing lines, and especially ethnic background. Even if it takes a bit more effort. Even if we don't have as much in common. Because guess what? Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from the one God. And if they're in Messiah, like you, well, you've, you've got Jesus in common. Start with that. It's also about being part of sorrow and apologies and restitution for wrongs done in the past that you personally didn't commit. Not out of guilt, but out of a desire to be like God. Because despite the fact that God did nothing wrong, he did whatever it took to be reconciled with the humanity that had wronged him. And it's about doing more than simply not putting up dividing walls or, or tearing them down once and then forgetting about them. No, it's about standing defiantly where that wall once stood and saying, you are no longer a foreigner and a stranger to me, but you are my fellow citizen among God's people. You're my family. Because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Be united. It's more than a slogan, more than a brand. It's the pinnacle of God's plan to restore his creation and a beacon of hope to a hopelessly divided world.